0: Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Boddy. This is Episode 49, Act 1, Mauricio Salgado, Reframe Around Repair, recorded November 15, 2021.
1: Let's start it up now.
2: Hey, hey, TA Podience. Welcome to Teaching Our Issue Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsi and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, your colleagues, and your friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. They can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And head over to teachingrsv.org to access more episodes, guest bios, our video series, merch, and more. So the Pod Squad took a much-needed break over the holidays and into the top of 2022. So, uh we all just did what we had to do. We we mutually agreed um that it would make sense for us to just take a take a little a wee break um and come back refreshed and rejuvenated uh and focus on the podcast. And now we're back. We're back with our first episode of 2022 and of season 6. What? I can't. I can't. I can't believe that we have been around for six six years, or enough to say season six. What? Um. Thank you so much for for listening and being a part of helping this this little indie podcast thrive. Um. Yeah, we're really excited about the slate of guests that we're talking to this year. And I am incredibly thrilled to kick off season six with our first guest, Mauricio Celgado. So I was introduced to Mauricio um, by a colleague at NYU, Joe Salvatore. And Mauricio w- um, invited me to lead a breakout session as part of a student orientation event that he was organizing. And while we were interacting, you know, as part of, um, like prep sessions, I was really drawn to his caring, like beautifully caring energy. And, um, when I, I did a little, you know, a little due diligence, a little bio search in, I saw something in his, like in the first sentence of his bio that I was so curious about, it really struck me. And so uh, that is the first question that I actually ask in this, in this episode, um. So yeah, I mean, uh, that was probably the, that, and my like interactions with him was the reason why I invited him to be a guest. And um, so this episode will be in two parts, um, like most episodes are. But I want to just distinguish this one is that um, when Mauricio and I first sat down, uh, we there was this sort of realization at the end of the conversation. That we 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 needed to talk more. So there is a second session, but it's an actual separate time that we met. So in this conversation, this first act, we are learning about Mauricio's uh, upbringing, uh, early career, and current work. And we're talking. We start discussing like some real big, big questions and big topics that we're we're asking of ourselves and and in continued conversations around. So I'm excited for you to hear Episode 49, Act 1, Mauricio Salgado, Reframe Around Repair. Hello, Mauricio. Que tal, Courtney? How are you? Que tal? Uh, um, I'm I'm doing okay. Welcome to Teaching RSG Podcast.
3: Gracias, gracias. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Um... So just, uh, just because I know you're sort of new in the, the lexicon of <laughs> teaching artistry is that this is a podcast that celebrates artists and culture and equity. And um, you and I met fairly recently. Um, so I'm excited to learn more about you and your journey and the work that you do. Um, and I saw this and I put it in my little notes about... Um, your pursuit of justice and healing through a decolonial de-col- framework. So, I want to hear more about that. Bamo, I mean, I
3: love it. I-, I gotta begin by saying I so appreciate what you do with this podcast and the questions that you ask of all of your guests. Uh, what a what a call! What an exhortation! to to name it to claim it to be better to grow. Uh, It's a gift. So thank you for that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you begin with this. You're right. I do post in my bio that of of all the things I am in pursuit of justice and healing through a decolonial framework. And you know what nobody asks me about that, right? And you're like, uh, can you bring it like, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, snap, like yesterday, I was like, ay, Dios, what do I mean? I que me recuerdo yo de eso, yo porque escribí eso. why did I write that? Right, I get in on myself. And then I remember, oh, yes, right. I know exactly why I wrote that. Because I was raised by a mother who all she did was read what was happening around her for uh, for the ways that injustice was happening and how she, we could do better. Mm. And so justice for me was, was a way of viewing the world. And I finally came to understand it through Reinhold Niebuhr. I don't know if that name rings a bell, theologian of the 20th century. One of these really well-known theos who talks about, uh, power is a pursuit it's not a place it's not a location it's an action to movement and it's a pursuit of it's the pursuit of balancing power and i get that that's a particular kind of justice that there are many different kinds of justice but i so Mm. appreciate that and i can recognize that is inherently what my mother was always about continues to be about uh, a pursuit of balancing power because the scales of power are always off balance you always got to be in pursuit of that balance
2: and what what does that balance like what is balancing power either manifest or what does it look like
3: yeah you know uh, and and hence why to me it matches well with decolonial framework um Mm -hmm. i understand the decolonial methodologies that um uh one of the tactics of decolonization, right, and I'm talking about decolonization within the movement for sovereignty, within the movement toward, um, you know, resisting uh, imperial oppressive structures, right, colonial structures. So not just as a metaphor, but one of the tactics towards that is you have to have an analysis of power, and you've got to be able to name it, you've got to be able to name what's wrong with it. And in naming it, naming it alone, we begin to balance it because uh, power is, is something that exists between us that Mm. is oftentimes Mm. unspoken. And so to name it is to speak, it is to locate it is to place it. And then we can begin to see what's wrong with it. Right. So, um, I think, I think about that. I think about the, an analysis understanding. How power is functioning in a space at any given time, being able to name it, being able to speak into it and being able to speak into it in a way that's attractive, that gets people to say, oh, right, yes. Oh, I don't want to be that way. Or, oh, yes, I want to be that way. I want to be even better than that. Um, That to me is a part of the work. That to me is is just work.
2: I I like where we've already gotten. (laughs) I haven't even asked you, how are you? (laughs)
3: oh man you know to go there i i just mentioned right i'm my little eliseo esperanza Mm -hmm. is six and a half months old and my beloved and i are are in the midst of sleep training so to say eliseo is training us how to sleep and uh this morning um eliseo was fumbling about in bed waking up and I'm up before that because I'm mindful, right? I've taken him out of the crib. I'm moving him into the bed. We're getting us, you know, trying trying to make sure things are calm until a certain hour. So we don't wake up too early. We don't get him used to waking up too early. And in Eliseo's fumbling about, he, he comes upon my face. And mind you, it's dark in my room. And for those of you who can't see me, I have a pronounced nose. I have a very sharp and pronounced nose. And it lands. Uh, mouth on my nose, like covering my nose. Is it something nice to suck on, you know? And it happens sometimes. I get it. It's like a spot to land. Uh, and then Eliseo stops, and then Eliseo, I'm pretty sure, fell asleep on my nose. Because uh, I feel the weight of Eliseo's head like coming upon my own head. <laughs> I start chuckling because I think it's so funny <laughs> that this baby has fallen asleep sucking on my nose. Uh, and in my chuckle, it terrifies him. He is so scared of this vibration beneath him, right? Like, uh, he starts crying, and you know, it throws the whole moment. But anyway, that's my life right now—like trying to respond to my baby and care for my baby, <laughs> like having my baby do all kinds of weird things to me and to my beloved, and, and loving it and like nothing but joy from it. It's a—it's a gift.
2: How are I you doing? doing? Oh. Um, I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. I, um, I was just telling you that I moved into this new apartment and this new building. And I was saying to a friend earlier that I feel like time has shifted since I've moved in here or how time runs has shifted. Like when I'm awake, I I honestly feel like one day is two, but not in a bad way. Like look at all the things that I got accomplished. And it didn't feel like, yes, things can be stressful, but somehow, I don't know, maybe because everything's like super clean and neat in here there's not a lot of chaos and any chaos I have is in box is boxed right now. And I'm carefully like dealing with one box at a time and really like placing it where it belongs and so I don't know if that's it or or what but or because I have this like really lovely view. I don't know. I but I'm I'm appreciative of the shift in energy in my life in the last few weeks. Um and hoping that it it continues to um yeah, feel feel that when the hard things are hard, and there will always be hard things, and th- some things feel like heavy and hard, um, that there's still some sort of brightness and lightness in my in my sector, in my little little corner of the world over here. Um, but w- w- when you were talking about your son, uh, it made me think about your mom, and wondering about you know what you said earlier about how sh- she was always pursuing. In the pursuit of that balance, and and sharing that pursuit or that drive with her family or with you, and wondering about you know just you're very focused on you know what's happening from moment to moment with with Eliseo, but I'm curious if if your mom's uh, energy ideals if any of that is swirling around with you or, or, or what are your thoughts around?
3: All the time. All yeah. the time. I uh, Something I heard was that parenting is all about w- what you're doing when you don't think you're being watched. It's like, it's all about all the little mm-hmm. things, the ways that I open the door, the ways that we interact with others. You know, for example, earlier today, uh, Cindy, my beloved asked me for something. And she said to me and Eliseo was she was nursing Eliseo at the time. And she says to me, "Uh, Mauricio, can you bring this for me, please? And she said in a very soft voice, primarily because she didn't want to disturb him from feeding. But I thought to myself, Oh, that's it, isn't it? He is watching how we're, we're with one another and that's all it's always gonna be. How we are with one another, how we are with others. How we, in my mind, for me at least, the move to stay heart soft, heart open, heart supple, uh, that's what's going to rub off. For as much as I might wanna like, you know, Preach to him about who knows what and a hundred things like that's what rubbed off on me and for my mom, you know, um, all the ways that she was without having to turn to me and say anything. It was who she was around me with everybody else, you know.
2: So, where did you grow up? And um, you know, yeah, what kind of kid were you?
3: I was conceived on the coast of Colombia. Uh, my my parents were at a they were doing some social work in a small community and they were at a at a seminary uh, on the second floor and it was a party underneath which is why my mom likes to say that i like salsa music because you know the party was going while they were going Mm -hmm. at it you know what i mean like it was happening uh (laughs) so yes my people are colombian that's how i tell that story (laughs) Um, moved here to have me my mother was pregnant with me when um the people they were working with were, were threatened and one of the priests they were working with was killed. So they came this mm-hmm. way. Um, they'd been here before. <laughs> My folks migrated to the US when they were teenagers separately, right? And then they met in New Jersey among the, the enclave of Colombians that were there at the time. And um, anyway, they come back this way. I'm born in Arlington, Virginia, but raised in the 305. You know, Miami, it's one of those places where we claim area codes. You know, like people tattoo it on their bodies. I don't know about other places that do that, but that's a distinctly Miami thing that I, I I have not done. I will not be doing. It's one of the reasons why I don't live there. Um, It's just (laughs) the idiosyncrasies of being from a very unique place. Um, Yeah, and then Miami, I grew up in my folks run a community center for migrant farm workers called En familia and That might that Community Center didn't fully like form as a not for profit until 2001 or 2000 but they they were teaching their workshops doing their work. um, Within that Community as far back as I can remember, Mm. and you know my folks didn't have childcare, so I just went with them to these workshops, Uh, and it was in those workshops where you know they're gathering in community centers and churches and they've got 30 or 40 migrant farm workers there, primarily from central america south america the caribbean and um, these folks are not folks who are used to learning in traditional ways right you're not going to give them a handout and expect that they're going to take the material or Mm -hmm. write notes on a chalkboard right you've got to make it interactive you got to have food and you got to make it interactive so my mother would the uh, first thing that they would do is they would walk in with a role play like before even announcing that they were there my mother would come in hollering about something or other dragging me along and i'm crying on cue right um because i'm hungry and she's like mijo por dios ya cálmate no mas and i'm like
2: mommy
3: and then my dad would come in and be like me i'm hungry where's my food and she would be like, excuse me, your food? I've been working all day. ¿Y haces con tu? And he's like, well, I expect you, you're my woman. You need to cook. And they're yelling at me, like, but please, somebody. And right at the height of the conflict, they would pause it. And yeah. they would turn to the audience. And my mother would say, senora, mujeres, you know, women, what do you think? Have you experienced this before? And they giggle to themselves. And one by one, she'd pull it out of them and they'd speak about it, right? And then my father would say, okay, ustedes hombres, you men, what do you think? Have you experienced this before? And silence, right? Crickets and the women would laugh at them because all knowing of the truth. And eventually my father would get them to speak and then my mother would say to me, y tú mijo, what do you think? What do you think, my son? And there'd be this collective gasp or uncomfortable laugh because in our culture, you don't ask kids their opinion especially not at three or four or five years old or six years old as as young as i was when i started doing that stuff you know uh and my mother had coached me ahead of time to be like uh yeah it feels bad when you treat me like this right uh and of course i get some laughter and then i'd look around and you know like any good clown right like see some laughter and it's like okay let me lean into it and then i'd be like because when my mommy and my daddy do this um, Talks about how I aired all their dirty laundry and embarrassed the hell out of them. <laughs> um, but that—that was—that's—that's that's a highlight, and uh, I turn back to that as like how I understand theater, how mm-hmm. I understand the power of people coming together to reckon with, you know, the realities, the fragilities mm-hmm. of who we are, the desire for do better, to be better, because there were all kinds of people in that room. People who were in all kinds of level of, of work and crises, you know, but people were showing up and I believe in that. I believe that people out there want to show up. They want to figure out how to show up and that theater can help them show up.
2: You know, it's interesting. In my, um, you know, the podcast has been around for a while and initially and for, you know, often I talk to people who were, are trained performers in some sort of genre. Um, and more recently I've been hearing people like you talking about how, you know, what I would, you know, immediately I was like, Oh, they're using like theater of the oppressed and they're using apply, like I'm using But at the same time, it's just like theater as a tool for exploring how to be in the world. Um, and, and seeing how, how theater you know, yes, there's the clowning. Yes, there's the sort of hamming it up or, you know, mugging or checking in and chickens and all that. But the the idea that being visual, being visceral helps people see something specific around an issue or what, what have you. And I just find that so fascinating because it's so different than my experience growing up. But I'm just, I was thinking again, just sort of going down the, the down a little bit into like, what were you, like, you were three, four, five getting coached by your mom and then doing this and then feeling that sort of energy from an audience. But what was the conversation after? What, you know, what, yeah, what, like, was this normal? Did you think that everybody's family was like this, that this is what they did?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. I mean, no, I knew my folks were unique but here's what wasn't unique
1: Mm.
3: is the ability to come around a story so for for example i didn't know that what we were doing was theater right i Mm. just thought this is what we do like it didn't have a name right it was just culture like that's what culture is right when it's so embedded in the fabric Mm -hmm. of who people are that's just what you do and that was, I mean, yes, I can call it theater of the oppressed. I can call it liberation theology. I can call it whatever I want to call it, right? What people in academia have deemed it in their research, looking back or looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and my folks, they hear me talk about it. And they're like, okay, sure. That's what we do, <laughs> like fine. But it wasn't, it, it was ultimately about a culture that does best, listens best, talks best when they're around the story. So you know, for example, I mean, whether it was in a community center with strangers, or whether it was at the holiday party with my family, right, like, that was always the behavior, the behavior was, let's get a story into the room. Let's be really big and expressive about it. Let's roast somebody let's roast everybody, right. And then we can talk about it, we can make meaning of the thing, be it through jokes, or However, however reverent we want to be about it, or irreverent we want to be about it, the subject matter was definitely unique. And because my folks are social workers, therapists, that was that taught me a lot. I mean, I um, every day at home at dinner or after those events, my folks would process and would talk about all the patterns and the behaviors and the trials and the difficulties of being. In a relationship of being female, of being Latino, right, which is the word we used at the time, of being uh, poor, of being an immigrant, of being all of those things would come up all at the same time, and this is where my mother my mother taught me so much about intersectionality before I even knew anything about it, because it's so clear about the ways that whenever any one of those intersections got left out. You know, my dad would say something, she'd be like, yeah, but you're not thinking about women this way, or someone said, yeah, but you're not thinking about the poor this way you're not thinking about like there's something you're missing, because they were in it, they were in it with these people mm-hmm. who, in conversation, would name it. Um, so there was a lot of learning um, from a very early age. That's made it, that made it easy for me to lean into this work and understand mm-hmm. without, without needing to go through school for it first
2: what is what is the work that you do now what role do you do you hold now
3: yeah yeah so uh i do a plethora of things all of this in the pursuit of you know what i what i consider as justice and decolonization right and so i think about i'm thinking about working with and alongside organizations that are trying to ensure that we've we've got sustainable right relationships with our ecosystems and our other organisms I'm doing, you know, reparative work, um, trying to figure out how we redistribute wealth uh, in particular for black communities. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to live alongside my indigenous relatives um, when it comes to seeking, you know, uh, sovereignty and respect for tribal nations and tribal law. Um, How practically, what does that mean? So in Arkansas, for example, I'm part of the Remember 2019 Collective. I'm one of the co-creative producers for the Remember 2019 Collective, which is, um, it's a a group of people who are, we're a group of artists who are collaborating with different local organizations to reckon with the history of a massacre that took place there in 1919. It's a 10 year project. And every year there are different manifestations, artistic manifestations that are asking the Mm -hmm. question, you know, what does it mean to be a community uh living with this trauma and moving towards healing um and that to me is about disrupting the archive right there is a very real uh, oppressive archive in that community that dismembered that history did not acknowledge even that that event took place until the early 90s uh and now is reckoning it pretty regularly and reckoning with the value of who gets to tell that story and who doesn't so that's one one of our bits that's one of our efforts, one of my efforts. Another one. I'm working with um, Dr. Monica and and Dr. Eve graves with the craft institutes. And this is a very expansive platform network that is trying to lift up people of the global majorities um, more often than not, meaning black Americans and people of the black diaspora um, through uh, who are artists. Through a whole series of things right social media networks mentorship online courses institutes like it's really just trying to create an expansive network resource base and I uh, am one of the co producers of their online course programming. Um, So there's that piece of work there's a work with the poor people's campaign, uh, which has to do with lifting up the, the platform that the poor people's campaign. Uh, I think is the platform, you know, for where we should be moving towards. Uh, and they're doing a lot of work to get the word out there about this platform. And I'm trying to activate artists to join that effort and that movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's my work with art equity. Uh, I'm a core facilitator with art equity, which is an organization that consults uh, and strategizes with our institutions in order to um, create policies that are equitable and inclusive uh, and anti-racist. And so I work with that organization that way. And then at NYU, uh, which is where we met, I am um, an assistant arts professor in the undergraduate drama program. And in particular, I focus on applied theater. I direct applied theater there um, where I'm, I'm really trying to serve students like myself. I was in a conservatory once upon a time. I, I studied at the Juilliard school, you know, so talk about like that. You might have started over here, but I definitely ended up in the professional training space, right? Uh, But I was a student there and I'm like, what am I doing here? This isn't where the conversation is for me. And I was looking for support. And so I'm trying to be that for young people at NYU who are like, "Uh, I have a reason for doing this work and it's not to make money. Uh, How do I think about that? And so I try to help those students out. Um, And then I'm also the program director for the Office of Diversity Initiatives uh within undergraduate drama as well so a whole lot of little things
2: oh i wouldn't say that they're little um <laughs> yeah but that's a that i mean that feels like a lot I'm, like talk about you know sleeping um well first of all i didn't even know that there was an office of diversity initiatives at myu so that's great that's great to hear and know um, and yeah, I think what I'm curious about, and then we can move a, a little bit forward, but I'm curious about, you know, Mauricio as a, as a little one to going to Ju- Juilliard and then sort of looping back and bridging back to doing the kind of work that you do now. Like what, is, is there an encapsulated way to, <laughs> to share that journey
3: yeah, uh, yeah, I will try.
2: Well, I can ask you very specific questions because uh, you're a very good storyteller, so I don't want to get in your way.
3: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I appreciate an attempt to synthesize. It's good. And I, and I can be, you know, I appreciate that calling me a good storyteller is also like AKA I'm long-winded. So let me see if I can get a little shorter here. Uh, I do want to nuance that the Office of Diversity Initiatives is specific to undergraduate drama. Uh, so okay. and we can talk about what that means why NYU has that as a structure, why it has all these different iterations of these efforts and how that's a mess at a later point. Um, the synthesis is, um, the synthesis is this, uh, and it actually comes from um, an indigenous folktale tale. Um, I believe it's an Anishinaabe folk tale that locates a person on a riverbed. And this person sees somebody else drowning, floating downstream. And the person jumps in to save the, per- the other person's life, right? And they pull them out of the water. And they pull them out of the water, they, you know, they're like, are you okay, are you okay? And the person's like, yes, th- thank you for your help, but there are others right behind me. And they turn around and they see that there are bodies just like struggling, floating downstream. And in the midst of trying to help all these people, stops to ask, why are these people falling upstream? Mm-hmm. And in this, we get into this metaphor of the change agent along the riverbed trying to create change. And sometimes you find yourself creating change at the point of crises, right? When the people are drowning. And then sometimes you go upstream to figure out like what is pushing them in the river in the first place, what is causing this, uh, my life, my parents have been at that work, um, primarily trying to respond to the crisis point, trying to get people out of the river who are drowning. And as I got older and as I joined them in that effort, Um, And as I got feedback for the work I was doing, I started to hear more and more people saying, thank you. And what are we doing to prevent this in the first place? Um, And so that's what I think led me to where I am now, trying to engage in academic institutions, which I think is one of the various bodies that create frameworks of knowledge that lead to the industries that push people into these streams of water, right? So, that's. I think that's the way that I synthesize the story a little bit,
2: ish, ish, useful ish. Does that work? Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yes. Um. I um thinking about art equity. I attended. I, I it wasn't this past summer, but the previous summer of twenty. Wait. Yeah, 2020, the summer of 2020, there were there was a series of webinars or sessions. Yes, I I I think maybe you were did you do anything in there because maybe I'm, yeah yeah, I'm vaguely I'm starting like you're starting to come into focus as somebody who is speaking, um. But you, you know who I have been dying to have on this is um Laura. Lauren Turner. I invited her when I was doing a series, um, about anti-racism, um, which is a video series on, we can't go back, but it, our, our t- like something happened and then this happened, like it just, our, our timing wasn't, um, gelling unfortunately, but hopefully someday I'll be able to, anyway. So she, she just really stood out to me because I think she led a, a good, portion of of the the sessions um and her voice was just really prominent from from my perspective um but that series was was done twice right it was offered in the summer and then it was offered again in the fall and i had i'd known other people who had attended and it was it was just this beautiful um very well produced very well crafted series that focused on yeah supporting um, uh, people of color who work in predominantly white institutions, white led institutions, and, w- uh, yeah, talking about survival, um, at a, at a, a big crisis moment, I would say. Um, and I think that for, I, I'll speak from the eye, but if it it, my perception was I knew what it meant to me, and how important it was to feel like I was a part of a conversation that I sometimes felt like I was only having by myself or in this very insular way. Um, and then learning more about conversations that I wasn't necessarily a part of that may or may not have been happening in, in, within my own institution, within my own community and with other, uh, within the, you know, the ecosystem of, of my little sector of the world of arts education. Um, and, I'm curious, yeah. Just knowing that you're you were a part of that and this work, like, w- 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 gosh, there's a question that's coming through that I don't know if you if it if I don't know if I'm if I'm allowed to ask this question, but I've, i I wanted to be a fly on the wall in the planning process. <laughs> like, what what are the conversations that you're having with your colleagues at our equity to put something like that together? So it doesn't have to be specific to that if you don't want it. To?
3: Yeah, of course. I mean gosh, those conversations I'm trying to recall them to say that there were there was the fact that these people were also everybody who was a part of that was also deep in their own crises right mm-hmm. and being called in to do that work was 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 challenging period and finding time to get to get like the right it's the ways in which we don't always model the healthy processes we advocate for you know in this um because as as some as like pr- profound movement leaders i appreciate um like to say you know structures of power always have 10 times the amount of time and resource uh, than we do and those who Lack that time and resource, are trying to figure out how to make up with it, you know, with enthusiasm and will and like, um, lack of sleep, um, and not, not so healthy. So that was a part of the mix. (laughs) I'll name that right Mm -hmm. off the bat. Um, (laughs) and that these were people, we were all responding to that crisis, right? The crisis Mm -hmm. that the pandemic exacerbated because it was already there people. Um, do not want to work in spaces where they feel devalued and dehumanized.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, but people need, need to survive. They need the resources and there just aren't enough jobs in this sector to work within culturally specific institutions. Uh, and that's a part of the structure, right? Culturally specific institutions are not well-funded enough Mm -hmm. to hire everybody that, they would want to um they're not embedded in community and those communities are not supported enough right all the ways in which it makes it it's really hard for a culturally specific institution to thrive means that folks get jobs where they need to get jobs and then they are just so they're broken they're they're hurt by it and in the crisis in the pandemic everybody's like why am i working here why do i do this my family is dying my communities are dying you know, I don't know, I'm scared to go outside my door. Why do I keep, why do I stay here? Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was like, let's speak to that. Let's be direct here to speak into this.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and I think that's what Lauren was so crucial to that series because Lauren told the story of leaving,
2: Yeah.
3: right? Others, others were telling the story of staying and how do you stay and how do you adjust and how do you navigate mm-hmm. and compromise and negotiate and all of that stuff. But Lauren was like, "No, you could leave. We could leave. Go. You could. You could figure something out else because you need to care for yourself." Yeah. And I, I think you know. Let's. I, I we I think we're seeing it all around us. More and more people are choosing to leave.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's that article. I didn't. I can't remember the source of it, but the Great Resignation is upon us. And I and I saw a statistic uh, the other day that 4.4 million people. Quit their job last month, yeah. you know. And I feel like those that what you just said about the dehumanizing nature of of work, wherever it may be. In in this case, I think it was very specifically. It seemed specifically focused on the nonprofit sector, but um, yeah, it's like asking those big questions about yourself. I feel like every everybody's asking questions of themselves and like what what they, what their own values are, how they want to be valued and how that ultimately manifests in decision-making processes for ourselves in, in whatever agency that we have for ourselves. You know, for me, I just mentioned that I moved to a new location. Like I had no intention of moving and couldn't have, could not, did not have the bandwidth of doing something like that this time last year when I was trying to deal with my mother's estate. Like there was no way that I was going to be able to do all the things that I was doing, deal with the crisis and deal with my mother's estate and say, "Oh, and and I'm going to move" because I I like that decision-making power, the power, the balance was not there. But you know, through the course of that and all sorts of other um you know, aspects I was able to sort of say, this this is what I value. This is how I'm going to start to value myself and I just said earlier like time is slowing down in a way that it felt so sped up. And in previous months within this pandemic um, that uh, there's something shifting, which that I think is what Lauren is saying is that you have the power to shift things. Um, And that goes, that's going to look different for each individual. And then there's the specificity of whether you go or you stay in terms of a working um, environment, building a work culture, changing, being a change agent, that's tiring work too. Right. Um, and how, like who, who my question, and it's not just my question, but it the question on the table continues to be who is actually doing the work. And when you're not, when the work is not being done, it's very clear. Um, and I, 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 I'm not actually calling anybody out necessarily, but it's, if, It feels like, in my opinion, like from my my viewpoint, I have the ability to have deeper conversations with people of color around this than I am with my my white identifying folk, um, my colleagues. Some of them try, and some of them are really you know wanting to, but there's there always seems to be like you can't get to the next. Whatever the next thing is, like it's it it continues to get to a place that gets this whatever I'm doing here <laughs> blocked, I guess. Um, and I I don't know what's gonna move. Remove that block, you know. Like what's gonna push them into the into the river? If I use that metaphor. To this
3: question of like what. Who's doing the work? What's going to push our white identifying colleagues into the work when it seems like they might be stuck?
2: Yeah, and I don't want to just make it a racial thing. I think it's a power a power dynamic yeah. as well. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. right, and I and I a couple of things I'll reference. Uh, I'll start with, and I'm I'm just riffing with you here, right? Like I don't have answers to my own experience, right, on this. Um, I've, so I, I think about oftentimes when I'm working with, or I'm trying to advise or, um, consult with people in power, I want to mm-hmm. talk about it that way. Um, I, I begin with a lot of my own self-interrogation about like my own sense of power. Um, the, the various ways in which, um, I was raised with. You know, for as much as my mom raised me to be a certain way, I was also raised in a larger culture, in a a, a generally misogynistic culture, in in a capitalistic culture, in a culture that, you know, as Ruby Sales likes to put, um, values disposability Mm. above all else, right? Things are means to an end, and in order for them to be a means, we have to accept them as disposable um, no matter what it is, everything is disposable on the way towards the end, which is, you know, power, wealth, access, etc. Right. And so I was raised in that. And because of the history of, you know, patriarchy because of the history of, of homophobia, because of all of these isms, I walk into a lot of spaces with a fair amount of privilege, right? Like I am, um, um, heterosexual, cisgendered Catholic, um, speak multiple language, come from people with masters degrees. Do you know, like my parents had ownership, all the ways in which my various intersections reveal a power within systems. Uh, and, and so in that way, um, I begin with myself and like, what have I done? What am I doing in order to disrupt that? What has helped me disrupt so that I could wake up to what comes next? And I feel like for me, the first part of this, this question of like, what, what are people doing? I feel like a part of what people are doing is, or, or what, we, what I know I've come to do, is to be a student of movement. I've got to regularly be engaging with the movements around me and how people are collectively thinking uh, towards something because there's something really stunning about how ideas can be refined into gold through movement together as a group versus in isolation or an individual kind of, uh, you know, these notions that there are such things as like the, the, Heroic individual who has the one good idea that everybody is moving towards, you know. So I try to be a student of movement. What are people, what are these groups of people doing and what's their vision and how can I get on board with that movement? That's part one. And I think white folk or people in power who are doing that are, are, are figuring out what that means for them, right? And are able to propose it and lead with it. And I see it a lot in the Poor People's Campaign, for example. Um, and to the second question, right? Which is like, oh no, I lost it, Courtney. What was the second question? You see, I'm so long-winded. I don't even know it. I,
2: did I ask a question? I don't know. No, I, I
3: felt like I broke out what you were talking about into two parts. I'm done, part one. Be a student of a movement
2: like- Oh yeah, What? Where's, where's the, where's, yeah, just, I like what you were talking about, the collective piece. And sometimes I feel like, can that collective movement towards something can feel fragmented
3: yeah yeah which was what i think what was so powerful about Mm -hmm. that series that art equity series Mm -hmm. right is that we were there were at least 800 people in each one of those events you know um A moment of us being like, oh, right, we're not alone, right? We have, we together, and then we could bounce ideas and have different ideas and shape ideas together because that's what was happening. Not just among the panelists, but in the chat, this really beautiful, constant developing, shaping, questioning, challenging ideas to make something. And I think that's the issue with power and people who think of themselves as in power is they often have to think of themselves as being the only ones. I have to have the good idea. I have to be the originator. And if I can't be, then I'm nothing. I have nothing Mm -hmm. and I just have to be quiet. Um, So I think that's a big part of it. And then the other part of it, I think is what I was saying before, which is you have to, I think everybody, we all have to come to terms with our own relationship to our own power Mm -hmm. and why it is we're insecure about it or where it is that we misuse it. Um, And for me, at least that's happening all the time. I'm both insecure and misusing my power all the time um as I'm trying to navigate and figure out the systems I'm working in and I think what I ultimately white folk got to do that too and thankfully I there I think I have around me in my life good examples of people
2: in power and white people who are doing that that's good that's good I do I have examples of that too I just want it to be more (laughs) more of more of them but um you know I've been thinking in talking with Kemi, actually like really trying to name or recognize, you know, when I'm, when I'm feeling like the advocate, when I'm feeling like the advancer, when I'm feeling like the accomplice. And part of the, all of that work is to at one, acknowledge the power and the privilege that I have also parents of, you know, well-educated uh, or having p- well-educated parents and, um, you know, just having access to a lot of possibilities, right. And, um, and specifically power and, and whether I, I don't know if I've ever thought about it, like whether I'm misusing power or leveraging power is the way I try to think about it. Am I always doing it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying. Um, and but I think one of the things that I was hearing inside of it is inside of what you were saying and sharing is that you can always recalibrate. Like every day you wake up, you can shift. And I wonder if sometimes it feels like, well, if I haven't done it by now, how am I going to do it? Like that could be one line of thinking one might go, but the idea of, you know, always, you know, striving to continue to learn, to continue to open up, continue to examine, self-examine, um, system examine, you know, and then disrupt once you understand what the thing is and how can you move it so that it changes some outcome that you would like to see. Um, these are the kinds of things that I'm... sometimes I feel like I get a little I get bogged down by like, I have to do this thing that's going to serve X, Y, or Z. And then I, and then later I'm like, wow, I really did that thing. But I, 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 that meant I put this other piece down for a second and I, Oh, and rather than living in regret, it's like, okay, well now this is my thing. And now we're going to, we're going to (laughs) keep, figure out how to weave it into these other sort of like daily, you know, tasks that one must do. Um, It's, it's, I find this, I find that, the parsing of everything so challenging and yet super, I'm challenged because sometimes I feel like, am I saying anything? Am I actually saying anything? (laughs) And other times I'm like, no, this is part of, this is part of the processing. That's
3: it. Yeah. That's it. We're making meaning, right. We're coming to it. Mm -hmm. We're working on the naming, um, which is, which is a gift that we have as artists, our curiosity, our incessant desire to like, to seek out the meaning to like get to the story, um, which is, which is such a human task, but we are, we're, we're uniquely, you know, in- encouraged to do it, developed to do it. I, part of what you were saying in regards to like the, you know, feeling like you have to do something. And then something throws this is how I interpret it, right? I feel like I have to do something and then something else happens, it throws me off and like, oh no, I did it wrong. Or like the shame or the regret of like, ah, what, how do I, oh no, it's too much. I can't do this every day, all the time. Um, it gets me thinking about it. There are a couple things that come up for me in that. Cause I, f- I feel it all the time. <laughs> One of them is uh, Dolly Chug, do you know Dolly Chug? Uh, teaches at it's Stern teaches inclusive management. Has written some really exciting uh, books. I'm currently reading Dolly Chug's uh, book, uh, "The Person that's You Mean to Be." Uh, Chug, C-H-U-G-H. And Dolly, you know, Dolly's doing something. She's she's making meaning, right? She's just trying to reframe. She's taking mm-hmm. a, a concept that's not new. This concept of like differentiating between fixed mindsets versus growth mindsets. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's reframing it to think of it as moving from being good people to being good-ish people. She's kind of, you know, she, she, because her field is is like, is uh, psychology, she's a researcher and management. Um, she's in her research and in the research that she studied recognizes that people, all of us think of ourselves as good. Like that's in our identity even if we do quote unquote bad things right by by society standards, we're still justifying it. Right. We're still like we're good at that bad thing that we do, you know, like, we're always reckoning with this good thing, this good idea that we have of ourselves. And really good people are really bad at that. We're really good at like, being really good, you know, and putting ourselves up against a really good corner, you know, like painting this really good corner. And then when we break from that, when someone catches us in that, like, in, in a way that we're not in our corner anymore. Then it's like, who am I like, uh, what I spent all this time justifying it, defending it, but wait, but no, but I, but how, but who, you know, all these ways but I am good. Right. I'm good. And she's like, that's really hard. And for me personally, impossible. (laughs) This I talk a very big game. I mean, anybody who's heard this is like that guy talks a big game. Do I actually fulfill it? No. Uh, And thankfully I've come to recognize that I'm not good. I'm good ish, you know, like I'm Mm. trying, I'm working on it. I'm growing every day. I aspire Mm -hmm. towards something and I connect that to the Enneagram. You familiar with the Enneagram? No. Uh, Boy, do I like to drop things. Enneagram is this resource, this, some people, you know, claim it's, you know, recent just to like the last century. Some people reach back to the desert ascetic monks of the 12th century, do you know? And uh, uh, some people go even as far back as to Pythagoras because it's a numerical system for understanding qualities, characteristics. Uh, and- what is, it? what is it again? It's called the Enneagram.
2: Enneagram.
3: <laughs> E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. I come to it because uh, Catholics, uh, social Catholics came to it in the seventies as a system to understand behavior and started bringing it into their training, their teachings and communities. Uh, and my mentors have taught me about like, it's a good tool to understand group collaborative dynamics. Basically there are nine numbers and these nine numbers are broken up into people who lead with heart, uh, lead with gut or lead with head. Mm. Uh, I happen to be someone who leads with gut, I'm a gut number. And my number in particular is pretty rigid. Like I do things one way, or I don't do them at all. And if I don't do them that way, I get real mean, or I carry a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. And these numbers, you know, depending on where you learn it from, they do a great job of like, they're encouraging you to reckon with your shadow, right, all the ways Mm -hmm. in which in a good environment, your qualities blossom and in a negative environment, your qualities wilt. Uh, I appreciate that because it helps me recognize this tendency that I have to like, I do one thing and I do it the best and I'm this and I'm that and all that stuff. And when I fail, I get real mad about it. Like that's actually, like I don't know that I'm gonna stray too far from that, Uh, but I can work on being the best version of that instead of doing all this to try to figure out how do I change that about myself? How do I become a little more like Courtney? How do I become a little more like somebody else? Mm It's like, I don't know that I can. Instead, maybe I can recognize, oh, that person is another kind of person. And together, all of us together, we could be something whole and beautiful. I don't have to be all these good things. I could be the good thing that I am. And you could be the good thing that you are. And you could do that in that beautiful way that's gonna take care of the moment in a way that I can't. Um, that's how I reckon with my shame or like when I, I did do it right, it's like, yeah, thankfully I'm not alone. I'm not the only person out here who's trying to do good.
2: Yeah, all, all of, all of that, all of everything that you just said, um, and I feel, I feel like if I, if I can recognize that, that, that I can, um, I can keep going, one, and and continue to, you know, I, I, I'm gonna, yes, I'm just gonna say yes to what you just said, and then I'm gonna say one of the things that I find really important for me is these kinds of conversations because they have such a deeper impact in other parts of my world that you know I don't capture in a podcast (laughs) you know and how I interact and the the collective nature of and the collaborative nature of what it is that we do is that by working with others I am better because I work with others we are better because we are working together Um, and that is a, that is a beautiful thing, but I also inside of that, I want to make sure that I'm, I, um, yeah, that I can, I lean in, that's all that I I can't, I am leaning in, in a way that, you know, if I need to lean back for a minute, it's because I I need a moment, but not because I'm scared or I don't want to do the work or, you know, whatever that, um, those, you know, those other kinds of colors can come in. It's just, I want to always be leaning in. It's just to what degree, what angle sometimes. Yeah. Um, I'm recognizing time. I know that the baby is is uh, the leader of your time. So I want to, um, I wanted to get back to something that you said we should talk about, but I also, I did look up the poor people's campaign campaign. Um, And, you know, I love this question. I ask everybody this question around, you know, justice and, you know, what does racial justice look like? Um, What does a liberated world look like? And you really talk about, um, you know, maybe checking out the Poor People's Campaign. But I'm also curious about, like, what what movement or shifts have you seen working at a large institution like... A higher ed institution like NYU in terms of EDI work, um, and you know, if you want to share just ways that you you see, yeah, change and where you see that there can continue to be growth.
3: Yeah, yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, the, I'm still learning about NYU. You know, I am. I'm a couple years in uh i arrived uh just as you know institutions were shutting down in response to pandemic so i'm engaged in this institution during it you know as it responds to crises uh and there is a lot to be said about how nyu did not respond to crises well Mm -hmm. about people You know, about how it did not communicate it's with transparency about its finances and so students were real mad about still being charged their tuition, even though they weren't getting the same quality of learning about standards of rigor or attendance and grading that were again, not spoken about clearly or directly, or there wasn't a unified stance. And so students were out here really struggling when there's so much else happening around them in crises, you know, um, about the ways in which we as faculty were told, just keep going, just keep, just keep doing the thing. And to some extent Mm -hmm. I get that because I know that I, when I'm experiencing crises, I need certain staples to be the same, right? I need to know I can return to something and to have it be steady um but it revealed how for as much as we thought we were the steady we were the unhealthy that the rigor the quality the quantity of time that we require of our students the kind of incessant productivity go 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 do more do more do more do more that's not healthy so to consider that as steady um well, it was not in my opinion, the right move. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot and, and to be said.
2: Yeah. Was that, do you feel like that was, like, do you, was that university wide or would you say that that your uh, window to the university was m- more specific to your school?
3: My department, I mean, even more than my school, my undergraduate drama is 1600 students with, wow almost 400 faculty, you know the majority of which are adjuncts. Um, so <laughs> there really isn't a lot of room to think or like learn from others because we're, there's so much happening within our department alone. So I'm talking about our department, but our department as a part of Tish, a larger yeah. school, which responded poorly in the moment, you know? Right. Uh, so I don't uh, right? All I have to go off of is that and mm-hmm. what it indicates to me is like that there's a lot to be said about the work that needs to be done right. um and then joining an office the office of diversity initiatives which was created as a as what as as, as they said as michael mcelroy who created it and ruben Polendo who created it as i like can attempt to prevent harm right mm-hmm. they're me they're on that riverbed at that crisis point right they're trying to pick people up out of the crises um, okay, but th- in a depart in like the department where you're building an office that is ultimately a service position that is under a faculty person's contract, that is an addition to their work, right. Mm-hmm. Where there isn't any like formal structure of accountability where they can actually make financial moves to address or adjust the financial need the students have the, the office becomes a bit performative, right? Yeah. So a lot of showing up in spaces and being like, stop doing that or do better. Um, but to what end? and about what, when people are ultimately like, um, I need to get paid better. Can you pay me better? Um, I'm a, I, I need to grow as a teacher are there resources and where's the money for those resources? Uh, I'm a student and I'm in crises. Are there scholarships? Like it so much has to do with how the institution is out here providing resources and not. And sadly, in the moment, whether or not we were right, like I, mm-hmm. I've started to ask that question of like a real picture of the amount of what resource the, the NYU in general moves for our students and our faculty, the narrative on the surface was that we weren't. Um, so I, you know. I do a lot day to day I do a lot of work with my faculty on like the nitty gritty right like how do you make your syllabus more inclusive and more diverse how are you building your feedback structures how are you prepping how are you allowing call in how are you all of those like day to day struggles but unless the institution is going to reckon with its finances with how it structures time with how it shares space with its responsibility to the geographical community, you know, including the indigenous communities that are from that place and joining mm-hmm. the land back effort. Um, I don't know that we can say much about the work we're doing. Mm-hmm. I will share just two ex- positive examples. Yes, okay. Um, there is a, there's a great bit of work. Um, it's it, You can look up, uh, land grab universities um this was a work that was done uh created i think through the sponsorship is the work of high country news and it's a a really powerful effort to track to trace how much money has been made off of lands that were given to universities by Mm -hmm. president lincoln Um, quote unquote land in the public domain uh, and these universities then took these lands and built endowments with them, right? These assets, the quote unquote, land as asset, right, as an endowment, and they've made all this money. And so, people, thankfully, there is this great resource that goes. And this is how much land was used by this bill that was introduced. Uh, and how about giving it back? How about moving that money um, right now? And uh, you know, some universities are beginning to reckon with that question. What does that mean? Um, South Dakota State University has actually started to use the money that they make from that endowed land uh, to Indigenous students, to fund scholarships for Indigenous students. Um, I'm like, great, more of that. Um, I'm all for, you know, these reparative efforts, these reparational efforts that are beginning to show up with institutions that are claiming, all right, we have a history of. You know our institution was built on the back of enslaved people and so let's give people free tuition and let's you know support research into this area and let's do that work. Uh, For the arts, I was at Brown University and one of the student organizers in the effort to make that program you know tuition free fully funded, you know I think talk about. uh, uh, An industry that perpetuates poverty. The arts. Uh, especially with young people who are going into arts institutions that charge them like Brown does more than $75,000 a year. Or like NYU does, which is the same amount. How do you expect these young people to make that money back? Like, do you really have a real like grasp on how much money people make in the industry? Um, And if you do, you know, you're you're basically running a Ponzi scheme and you're building your university off the back of these young people who are putting a lot of money into a degree that isn't going to pay them back. So universities that are out here making their programs tuition free and are paying their young people stipends to go to school, I think that's that's some some real anti-racist decolonial work.
2: Oh, Mauricio, I want to talk to you more.
3: Yeah, me too, Courtney, I want to talk to you more.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like I have a lot to learn and just share and exchange. Um, but I wanna thank you for your time. I can hear the baby in the background. Sorry, I don't wanna I don't wanna keep you much longer. But um, you know, thank you so much for yeah, sharing your, your experiences, your knowledge, your storytelling. Um it's been a real pleasure. The
3: pleasure Courtney, thank you. Gracias a todos, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 49, Act 1 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Mauricio Salgado, Reframe Around Repair. Join us next time for Act 2. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John o. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life.
1: Let's start it up now let's start it up now